0: A, Pod Quixote, a certain time podcast. I'm your host, Steve Hessel, associate professor of Spanish at Ball State University and a Cervantes fanboy. Today on the podcast, Christy Gar Santos of South Dakota State talks about Dorotea and Zoraida, two fascinating characters from Don Quixote, leading us to a conversation on embodied performance, identity, social media, and a whole lot more. That's coming right up, so stick around. Welcome to Pod Quixote, our first episode. Uh, we're here today interviewing Christy Santos of South Dakota State is that University, uh, tag on at the end there. Okay, it is very nice. Uh, apologies in advance. Uh, I had a little bit of a cold. So my Normally, mellifluous voice sounds a little bit off, Um, so you'll get used to the beauty of my voice more in the future than now. And also, uh, I have uh, some background uh, AC sound going through. I'm going to try to get that out in post. But uh, uh, thanks for everybody for learning with me and being patient with me. So welcome, Christy. I wanted to start out today generally just who are you? I gave you a little bit of an introduction, but as a person, who are you? We met years ago at uh conferences. We got to explore uh Don Quixote and the American West together. Um but uh if you want to give a little bit of uh, an introduction.
1: Sure. Uh yeah, so uh my name, as you said, is is Christy Garzantos. Uh I am the director now of the School of American and Global Studies at South Dakota State University. Um, I am a Cervantes specialist by training. I did my Ph.D. at the University of Iowa and uh, worked with Ana Rodriguez Rodriguez and um, also with Denise Filios. Uh, So let's see. Yeah. Um, Do you want additional information or well, we, we can jump
0: right into it i'm always interested okay. to know
1: mm-hmm.
0: how people came to studying cervantes um mm-hmm. i know in my personal career being a cervantes uh expert i'm putting air quotations up there as well um what I I always, when people ask me what I do and I say this is what I do, I'm a Spanish professor and then, oh, what do you study? And they say, well, how did you get into that? So I I was wondering, what was your first experience with Cervantes?
1: Yeah, I was really lucky. So um, I'm from the Mountain States, uh, originally from Montana and Wyoming. I graduated from high school in Wyoming. I had an amazing high school Spanish teacher. Uh, She was fresh out of, of school and just really smart and engaging and energetic. And my senior year of high school, we read significant excerpts of Don Quixote, and then we we performed a scene as as part of our final project. Um, and I was Dulcinea <laughs> in the scene. Um, and yeah, so I I when I went to Colorado State University to complete my undergraduate. Um, I knew that I wanted to study Spanish. I didn't quite know what I wanted to do with it at the time. Um I definitely didn't go in saying I want to be a professor or, you know, I want to study Don Quixote or or Cervantes. Um but I you know, uh did my undergraduate in Spanish, uh read Don Quixote again as a senior in in college this time. Um had a completely different experience as you know and and i remember that professor saying um, that she had had read the quixote many times throughout her life and that it changed with every reading Um, and and i was fascinated by that idea Um, I, i loved golden age theater uh, that was actually where I, I thought my, my area of specialization would be, but um, ultimately it ended up being Cervantes, and I, I, I wonder if that's also my fascination in performance studies, that, that original interest in, in the theater, um, but, but Cervantes and his characters are, are so performative that that's ultimately where I ended up.
0: Yes. No, I, I, I agree, and... Uh the performance aspect is something that uh, i've always tried to incorporate because it it brings students into it um there's a certain uh inaccessibility to the quixote um not because of the quixote itself but this kind of wall culturally that we've built around it and doing performance and, and reading the quixote and laughing and having fun and not just thinking of it as this incredibly famous uh and important book really opens up things and i uh, I think I'm a little bit older than you, so I, I I don't know if you can personally attest to reading it at different points of your life and how it changes. But I've read it uh, and the other works of Cervantes so many times, and they change more so than other books that I've read a lot. And maybe this is a little bit why, uh, at least in the theatrical side, uh, Cervantes is uh, was at the time during his life a failure, right? But also a genius. Um, when we, we look back at, uh, his, um, his works and, and stagings of them, that really didn't happen during his lifetime. Mm-hmm. So that's a really cool way of, uh, did, so, uh, reading it, um, how was it getting into grad school Then reading it and then reading it as a professor? Did that change the process?
1: It did. Um, yeah. I mean, as a grad student, you know, and and given that that was what I wrote my dissertation on, it it was a completely different experience. And and I actually I um, I took a pause between uh, completing my master's degree and going back to my uh, Ph.D. work. And so I was an older student as well when I came back to doctoral work. Um, and I had read it and taught it excerpts mainly um, in that interim time period and you know spending four or five years of your life with a text um, is, is really a different experience and, and I think just the richness of his work came out um, I really came to think of, of what he was doing as a didactic project um, you know, as sort of this this effort to to teach us new reading strategies, to teach the reader um, to be empathetic and open. Um, you know, so and, and I am guessing we'll get into some of this, but that that openness to paradoxy or to to ambi- ambiguity um, was what really came out for me in in my graduate work, I guess.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and that dovetails perfectly with uh, my next question for you. Um, teaching this, uh, or presenting it to other people, or doing a talk, especially if you're not in a room with uh, fellow nerds, uh, yeah, you have to sell what you're presenting. So what's your elevator pitch on why we, we, sh- we should be reading Cervantes? Uh, and you can talk specifically about the Quixote, or just, uh some of his other works as well.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny that my my elevator pitch has probably changed as well. Um just with you know, I I don't know that the the humanities have never not been in crisis. Um <laughs> you know, I think we're we're constantly defending ourselves as as humanists and as scholars of of literature and literary studies in particular. Um and so recently with you know, uh whether it has been what's going on politically whether it's been what's going on specifically in higher education and the cuts that we've seen to language programs and humanities programs, um, I was really struck by a question that David Castillo poses in uh, you know, a fairly recent article where he, he talks about, you know, how, how do we explain our dedication to commentary on texts that were written centuries ago, often in foreign languages, when students are so inundated by messages now due to social media and our expanding digital networks. And it was a really great question. And I think my answer to that question and, and why we should read Cervantes is that his work teaches us to be discerning readers. Right. Um, It teaches us to be alert, educated, ethical and empathetic readers, Um, not only of the written word, but of the world around us. And I think that's so critical Um, precisely because we are being inundated with with all of these external messages and narratives and people who are trying to shape our identities, our beliefs. Um, And if we're going to be active participants in that and not just passive recipients of those messages, I think Cervantes' work does a really nice job of of teaching us how to sit with ambiguity, right? How to um, value those moments of unknowing and those multiple ways of being in the world. Um, And I I recently attended an an MLA summer seminar, and someone— described this skill as symbolic competence, which um, I I hadn't heard before. So we talk about, you know, how language and literature study gives our students intercultural competence, but this concept of symbolic competence as the ability to understand and navigate intersubjective relationships of power, or, you know, a little more simply put, the ability to position oneself in language... And to understand and manipulate the power game. And for me, that is part, that is what drives Cervantes and and his texts.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, getting back to the very beginning of your commentary, you know, we talked about the uh, humanities in, in crisis and we laughed, but we both laugh and cry. It's masking tears, right? Because it's, it is truly something that has been going on, I think, you know, even before uh, we, uh, started our undergraduate work, uh, and it's something that's, uh, constantly going on, but yeah, uh, bringing up David, uh, David actually continues on with this. Um, I had a chance to look at his, uh, uh new book coming out with Bill Eggington and kind of with this symbolic, what did you call it? Symbolic competency. Mm-hmm. Uh, they talk about something that's very similar called reality literacy, um, the ability to read um, the not just reality with a capital R, but the realities that are around us that are constantly interacting that are creating that paradox that you were talking about. And I think that's uh, that is uh, you're you're doing the you're fighting the good fight, um, showing students the value and the um, way to apply what they're learning in these classes in the real world. Uh, without necessarily making it something where uh, it's just a marketable skill uh, to increase their participation in the market and their buying power, right? Which is something that's a, a concern we have to think about with students, but also showing them the skills that it's it, going to give them as they move on throughout life. So yeah, that's that's very similar to to my elevator pitch. Um, so you, you talked a little bit about this, like, new term, you know, the symbolic competency and 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 such, and uh, a, a lot of the reading um, that I've been doing is articles that you've put out in the last few years, but I want to know what you're working on right now, um, and we'll probably circle back to that at the end of our conversation today.
1: Yeah, so I have two projects in the works. Um, one of them... At, One of them is is, uh, what I would term a a traditional academic uh, monograph. So I'm working on a book project tentatively titled The World Turned Upside Down, uh, Cervantes in the Era of Social Media. And um, that is, uh, in part, an attempt to to continue this and, you know, an answer to David's question of of how do we explain this dedication um, to text written centuries ago, and why is it still relevant? Um, and the the first part of the of the title is a reference to Hamilton. And so it's uh, a, at least one of the chapters in the book uh, deals with uh, are putting those two texts side by side and and comparing those projects. Um, and then my second project, uh, I would, describe as quixotic. (laughs) Um, That came up uh, completely unexpected uh, as a direct response to the COVID-19 outbreak. Um, So I don't know uh, if you picked up on this, but uh, the first hot spot outside of New York City occurred at Smithfield Foods in Sioux Falls. And uh, the state made international news, not, not for great reasons, um, but due to some service and outreach work that I was involved with, um, with various grassroots organizations and advocacy groups, we started getting a lot of calls from the immigrant, refugee, non-English speaking workers at Smithfield saying, hey, this is going on. Um, and so... We've developed a number of projects out of that um, that we did develop an outreach and service center called Phi or the Public Humanities Initiative. One of those was purely outreach work um, as part of the South Dakota Dream Coalition, which came together super quickly. Um, we raised almost a million dollars uh, for the Immigrant Emergency Relief Fund. Um, those workers were, you know... Um, Deemed essential workers, and yet they did not have access to the CARES Act relief fund. Um, and so, again, talking about these, these paradoxes and, and how and why representation matters, um, you know, we saw that in real time. And so uh, we were able to provide multiple grants to individuals and families um, through, through the DREAM Act. Uh, or the Dream Coalition, um, so we were super excited and and pleased about that, and that coalition still continues, even though um, the fund. Uh, I think we ended up with nine hundred <laughs> and thirty uh, two thousand dollars, and I think we're down to six thousand now that that we're um, sort of meting out as as uh, on an as needed basis. Um, but then there was a research project that came out of that as well. Um, I feel a bit like Don Quixote traveling across the meseta. Uh, we've been traveling across the state of South Dakota virtually via Zoom doing uh, oral histories, So collecting oral history narratives um, from communities that we don't often hear from, as well as uh, you know our, our traditional communities, um, trying to explore... Uh, people's sense of, of membership and belonging in the state. So what is a South Dakotan? How do we define that? Who counts? Whose stories get told? Um, so I see that as a really quixotic or Cervantes-esque project. Um, but but yeah, that sort of uh, sidetracked my, my more traditional research, but it's it's been a great adventure.
0: I see it as an application of your research in a lot of ways, I mean, Cervantes, so many of his characters are part of communities who don't necessarily quote-unquote fit within the systems or find themselves uh, underserved or actively persecuted by a system. Uh, and I think so much of the research that we're going to be talking about with your work on Dorotea and Soraida is about being part of one of those groups and telling your story And telling your story in a way that can be uh, heard and then perhaps affect some kind of change. So, yeah, I I love that. I I think that's, um, and that's for me, the next step in uh, in el Cervantismo or, or, or Cervantism is seeing how we can bring this into the real world right take these chimeras of fantasy of don quixote and other characters uh which do matter and make them incorporate them into the real world so that's great i and uh i applaud you for doing that and i wanted to because we're i think that project fits with telling stories and being part of a group that doesn't fit uh let's get to dorote and soraida could you give us a little bit of a there, there are two characters that appeared in um in don quixote um, Don Quixote Part 1 if I'm remembering correctly, both of them okay. um, both female characters, both in situations where uh, they're somewhat or completely outside of the system um, and we are presented their stories, sometimes actively by them like in the case of Dorothea um, but also through the words of others uh, in the case of mostly Sorayda, I, I One thing I was reading through one of your articles, and you, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, you said Soraya says 11 words. It's correct. Uh, throughout. Uh, she's such a central, important character, but we only get 11 words directly from her. So could you give us a little bit of a rundown of who they are, what situations they find themselves in in Torquia, part one?
1: Sure. Um so yeah, I mean they are, are two really fascinating and in my view interconnected female characters in the 1605 Quixote. Quixote*. Um, when we meet them in the text, uh, I I would classify both of them as as the as traumatized characters. Um, to get really theoretical. Um, I think they're unviable characters, according to to dominant discourses of the time.
0: Could you unpack that a little bit? What do you mean by unviable?
1: Yeah, I I would say that um, both in terms of of the the material conditions in which they find themselves. uh, So Dorothea is often referred to as a jilted farmer's daughter, um Soraida, of course, arrives on Spanish soil at the height of the Morisco debate, right? Are, are these new Christian converts from Islam going to be allowed to be Spanish citizens, to stay on Spanish soil? Um and so so they're in these really challenging subject positions. Um and so, as you say, they, they you know, to use the words of Judith Butler, they have to do something with what's been done to them. Um, and and we can circle back to that. I think that's a really interesting um, paradox that lies at the heart of, of subjectivity for all of us, whether we're talking about, you know, the 17th century or the 21st century. Um, so... Dorotea, as as I said, is is a farmer's daughter, um, who we used to call jilted, but I would argue that uh, today we would call what happened to her date rape, right? Um, so it was she has survived this date rape by a very powerful employer, right, uh, or the the or at least the son of of an employer, and. Had managed to extract a marriage promise from him, uh, he takes off, uh, marries another wealthy uh, in order to marry another wealthy woman, and and she dresses up in drag and takes off across, um, you know, the the Spanish countryside in pursuit of him, trying to to convince him to make good on his promise. So. Um, you know, just that alone. Students love that story. They're fascinated by that story. Um, and I think it's one of the strengths of Cervantes, right? He, he creates these really vivid, compelling characters. Um, Soraida is another one. Uh, very different situation. Uh, she's the daughter of a, a wealthy Algerian. Uh she ransoms some Christian captives that she, you know, sees outside her window on a daily basis, um, hatches a plan with them, and manages to fund their escape um, to Spain in order to complete her conversion to Christianity. and and along the way abandons her father, um, you know, on an island in the middle, in the middle of the ocean. So it, it's a really, uh, again, there, these really complicated human messy stories.
0: Yeah. And that's one of the things that we find that's really interesting about Cervantes is all these things you're talking about. Um, for example, for somebody who might not have studied the uh, period. Um, there is something, typically now we think of you get married, you have your married li- your marriage license, you go through the ceremony, what have you, and then you're married, right? But there was a little bit of flexibility from my understanding at the time, especially dating back to the Middle Ages where you know, the priest didn't come around, you didn't have a priest in every town, so a promise of marriage in many ways was enough to almost begin to live as man and wife. Right. So uh, for some, for us hearing this uh, or getting into the particulars of Dorothea's case would be like, oh, well, you know, they weren't, they never went through the marriage. Right. But it, we, you have to explain this to students. Well, the understanding would be that way. But that's kind of a historical thing that you would see. Same thing with Soraida, uh, the ransoming of captives, of Christian captives. This was a game being played across the Mediterranean um, during this period that might seem a little bit weird for us uh, to think about, but it's you know, we have historical proof of this going on. Then Cervantes takes this, and he puts this into a fictional realm, right? Um, in which he could really clean it up and take off those rough edges. Um, that, And I don't want to make anybody who loves Lope angry by saying this, but Lope would take off a lot of those rough edges. Um, Cervantes doesn't. Um, And some people have criticized him for that, thinking he's a lazy writer. Um, Some people find the genius in that. um, I sit out of that conversation, but it does really, in my opinion, just as you've stated, create these really interesting, messy stories.
1: Yeah, and and I think that, I mean, for me, again, I I sort of sit, sit out on, you know, is it intentional? I mean, you know, authorial intent and and that whole you know can of worms. I, but but what, as a result, we're left with, are these really great stories that that we can still grapple with, right? Um, you know, I think, in the case of of Dorotea, um, what we see with her story is many of the same difficulties that we have today of how do we define rape and and what happens when you know the rapist and and even who how does does the character or or the survivor him or herself grapple with that based on the narratives um that surround those stories um so I, yeah i i i mean i and and to i could give a an example um so i i have been working on an article where i i read the dorotea story in relation to several very high-profile contemporary um, rape cases, so uh, the Brock Turner case at at Stanford, the Stanford swimmer, um, who, uh, as well as Harvey Weinstein, and and even the the Brett Kavanaugh uh, case, and you know what. It, it's really interesting because what we see there in the cases of those survivors is that they themselves question what happened to them. And I think that's why judges and juries have such a hard time um, coming back with a conviction in these cases is because the the person, them themselves, they they don't have the words, to represent what happened to them. Because in our telling, right, um, a rapist is, is a monster who jumps out of you in a dark alley. You typically don't know him, he, you know, and, and it is typically male in our narratives. Um, and, 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 you know, you're, you're completely blindsided by this. But what do we do when, when there were elements of consent, up to a point, uh, when when you know the person, when perhaps you work with the person, um, it, that gets super complicated. E- and and even today, we we don't do a good job of dealing with this. So, so the fact that that Cervantes with with Dorotea's tale, and in her own words, she she lays out this story, um, and and she goes back and forth. Right? I was really flattered with. With his interest and his affections, um, but I knew, right? Like, so it's it's this this sort of back and forth um, that has left critics, you know, or, or maybe opened her to to accusations by critics. I think of of gold digging, of you know, not being. Uh, not being completely honest in her intentions, which is, is really interesting. Um, you know, again, this sort of victim blaming. Um, so, so, yeah, that, that has been a really interesting exploration.
0: Well, and I think it's fascinating because, you know, we look back at the Golden Age and um, it's very easy across the span of like 400-something years to create a distance and say, we are not that. Um, but the case you're talking about uh and ca- in Cervantes or cases and then the cases in the real world, we one of the things that the that the the Dorothea's case especially highlights for me is that a victim of trauma still has to navigate the system. Um, and the system is something in which you have to tell a story, or have a performance before the system so that the system can uh, see you as i you were talking about unviable subjects but a viable subject something that the system can look at and say your story makes sense to the parameters that i've created and you're exactly right the parameters that we still have today even though they've opened up a bit um in issues of abuse and sexual assault etc is of uh A man uh, that we can imagine, according to cultural prejudices, that jumps out and attacks somebody, and this is the specific idea that everything is somewhat compared to within the system. Uh, And I think we can get a little bit into this, like this, what you what you term as embodied performance uh, on the part of Dorothea, but her way of trying to make herself, to defend herself, but make her understood within the eyes of the system. Now, this might just be talking to Don Quixote's friends that she runs into on the road, or to uh, Fernando, her rapist, Um, but that's the, I think, real fascinating aspect of your work, of how you pick apart the different components of this embodied performance. Could you talk a little bit about, like, I'm just throwing this term out there, embodied performance, but could you talk a little bit about what that is?
1: Yeah. Um, so at its most basic, I think embodied performance is any act that, that one performs with the body to convey identity. Um, so that can be clothing, it can be gestures, but, but even speech, uh, food <laughs> um, you know and the Quixote actually opens with this embodied performance or at the very least the report of an embodied performance right we see the description of Alonso Quijano's lance and shield and his woolen tunic and his velvet breeches and and what he eats on a daily basis um, his complexion his build right so so that very first page of the Quixote opens with this embodied performance, and we immediately can classify or identify Alonso Quijano, right, as as this hidalg,o um, as a poor hidalg,o. So, um, it, so all of us are constituted as subjects through embodied performance, and I, and I think the the thing that um, I find so compelling about this or, or fascinating about this is that we don't have a choice to perform. We are constantly performing. Whether, whether we want to or not, whether we know it or not, we, we are constantly involved in these iterative embodied performances. All the
0: world's a stage. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> exactly. And and so we see we see that with Dorotea, right? When we meet Dorotea, she's in a very compromised position. She is literally dressed in drag as a male shepherd, and Don Quixote's friends spy her from behind this rock as she's washing her feet at the river, and and it's her hair that that gives her away, right? Um, so so her body, like. Her bodily markers don't match the performance that she is trying to convey. Um, and I think that, too, that, again, going back to that concept of paradox, um, it, it is often when we fail to perform a nor- the norm that we are compelled to perform again, right? So, so our agency um, is open up. Opened up in, in a way by by failure at times, right? Um, and so Dorothea does have to tell a story that will make sense of this compromised position in which she finds herself. Marty right? I, I am. He has talked about how um, subjects are constituted not through a single but but through these multiple discursive positions. So so I'm including discourse and speech as bodies, but but so this this embodied performance but also how how we represent ourselves discursively. And there are always competing ideologies, competing narratives, right? And so we have to figure out as as humans, as subjects, how we are going to pick from and choose the discourses that we are going to use to represent ourselves. So yeah, so so Dorotea has to do that through uh, these economic discourses, but also um, moral discourses, and and I'll I'll circle back to that. So so we see these competing discourses of of blood and lineage versus good works, right? So, um, and there's this, the the arbitristas of the time, or sort of what today we would call maybe uh, economists, um, we're, we're putting forward these cases that, you know, the nobility really needs to work. Like, we we should not say that it's honorable not to work. Like, in order to be a productive society, we're really going to need folks to work. And so so Dorotea uses that as a defense. Um, you know, look, he was this, this noble playboy who was up to no good. Like all he was doing was, uh, you know, flirting with me, pursuing me, like throwing parties in my streets, um, whereas I was – I was working, I was producing things, I was the carekeeper of, you know, the wine presses and, you know, the various things on my family farm. And and so she uses this to really defend herself um, and to say, as this new Sort of this this new appearing class of rich farmer laborers, I'm more noble than he is, and so this nobility should count for something. Um, and then she also goes to these very traditional discourses of virtue and and tries to show that she was this virtuous virgin that she was doing all of the things that she was supposed to be doing according to traditional discourses. Um, And so so she really uses this combination of traditional discourses with what I call um, these incipient or or contestatory discourses. And so it's this really unique combination um, that ultimately allows Don Quixote's friends and Don Fernando to say, okay yeah you're right um and ultimately you know she she famously says yo soy tu esposa right i am your wife uh and he has no no option but to acquiesce and and i would also say that um as you had mentioned she very astutely also uses legal discourse right like she knew uh to get a contract from him. Not only did she get the verbal consent to marriage, but she had him sign something that night. Um, And so, you know, she just has everything on her side uh, at the end. And and he is left with no option but to to acquiesce.
0: And I think that's the fascinating thing about her case that is revelatory, like really shows us some of the interesting aspects of our system, Uh, she takes discourses that should in many ways be opposed um, and value systems that have become kind of part of the system, which just like her identity and her circumstances is always changing Um, and weaves these together in a really interesting way, novel way, that leaves Fernando at a loss um there's many cases uh i think you talk about israel bersatten uh you, in one of the articles and he's worked a lot on eleno de cespedes uh and similar uh, inquisition trials where someone and i won't get into the details of that specific one but we'll, you have many cases where someone comes in front of the inquisition and they present a very convincing argument according to a certain discursive tradition that fits within the parameters of the court itself, um, and uh, in most cases, I see this person lose ultimately. But they come so close, and then there's that one thing. Uh, it could be the embodied performance, the, the aspect of it that betrays the um, the logic of their argument, and therefore uh, is used to undermine it. And I think we see this. Today, for example, uh, um, we can talk about the Brock Turner case, and there can be a very good argument put against him, but when you look into other details that are brought up, perhaps by the defense litigated in the media, there comes this uh, reaction from people of, oh, well, she did this. Well, why was she at a front party? Mm -hmm. How does that undermine her discourse of virtue Mm -hmm. in trying to make a case that that um that this was a violation of of what she wanted and i think you talked a little bit about this about dorothea where she she does include those aspects again i think cervantes could have smoothed this out Mm -hmm. and made it much more easy for us to say, "Okay, yeah, Fernando was wrong, she was right, but he always includes these little details that uh, could allow a different narrator, a different voice, a different interpreter to come in and undermine those, and uh, I think there's other ones like um uh, later in part two it there's a Claudia Jimenez." Uh, who thinks she's been wronged and goes and and kills her husband to be to find out that on his dying breath that he wasn't doing anything, right? There's always these weird aspects of the stories that he brings in, those ironic aspects that complicate it, but also show that it's a complicated system, right? And we, a lot of times in stories, like to try to smooth those edges.
1: We do. And I, I think that's, again, the the genius of Cervantes, right that um we like we like there to be black and white answers, right like we we like to think as humans, I think <laughs> that that there is like this truth out there with a capital T, right? like that if we just dig enough, like we'll find that. And I think that's what, what Cervantes' work does. And by not smoothing out those edges, he really forces us to just admit like life is never black and white like that. We we never get those simple stories. Like, um, you know, and, and truth is elusive and 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 multi, you know, there are multiple perspectives. And so I think for me, it it is that teaching us that we need to be comfortable with not knowing, like we have to be comfortable with ambiguities. And if we're going to be ethical respondents to these performances that we witness, we need to admit that oh, or... Or accept that somebody may be viable, an identity may be viable, even if it's unrecognizable to us. Like if we demand recognition, if we demand sameness, it, it's we're just going to be very frustrated, or or very violent, right? I mean, very violent.
0: Well, that leads me to kind of my my big question that i had for you that i don't know if 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 we if we can even fully broach this right but it's something i wanted to introduce um we obviously as identities as individuals um present ourselves and we have to deal with the systems of the world that interpret us and therefore decide how what they're going to do with our identity um and Dorothea is a, a great example of someone who has mastered the combination of these paradoxical discourses to achieve an end that she wants. But it's also, I don't know, I mean, from the Golden Age perspective, she is redeemed, right? But my students look at him and they're like, well, she still had to marry her rapist right? Um, and I it leads me to this question, and I wrote this incredibly, and I sent this one to you beforehand, I wrote this incredibly like jargony uh, question uh, that I'm going to read, and then I'm going to try to break down, and we'll see if we can talk about this a little bit, but how does the cultural history of patriarchy prefigure and limit the expression of femininity to, uh, from a truly female locus of enunciation? So really just big Theory words, right? But if we break this down, Dorothea still has to present her embodied performance within a system that is set up not to fit her. So even though Dorothea is successful, and we can we can learn from Dorothea, the students can take that and realize that they exist in this kind of world where they present their have to present their performance that way, and keep these things in mind it still seems horribly unfair. I mean, is there a way out of this rabbit hole?
1: Yeah, and I don't... I mean, I would say no. I I think that, um, you know, as as Butler points out, style is never truly or fully self-styled because history and culture limit our possibilities. So even though... Subjectivity is infinitely possible, right? We have infinite iterations of subjectivity, only within a, a, a historically prescribed style, I guess. Um, and and since you did send this to me, um, so I I, I, I I actually went and got the quote from Butler. Um, it, it's, a, it's a great quote in Undoing Gender. Um, and so, so she, she and Kelly Oliver, I've, I've combined these um, in, in ways in, in previous articles. But, but there's always this tension between finite subject positions that we have at our disposal and this infinite possibility of subjectivity, of doing and responding, right? And, and so Butler puts it in Undoing Gender like this. The possibility of my persistence as an I depends on my being able to do something with what is done to me. If I have any agency, it is opened up by the fact that I am constituted by a social world I never chose. That my agency is riven with paradox does not mean it is impossible. It means only that paradox is the condition of its possibility. And I actually find that hopeful. (laughs) Um, You know, we don't need to despair about paradox um, or contradictions or ambiguities. But I think, as Cervantes shows us, we do need to be discerning readers. Because if we are going to be effective in our performances – we have to be able to read the world around us. Like our our success, I guess if you will, in in creating a viable subject position is going to be dependent on us being able to combine and recombine the available discourses at our disposal um, in a way that is intelligible to our audience. But – and I think this is where I really like Oliver – Kelly Oliver, the feminist philosopher. I really love her work because she then takes that one step further and says, but that's why there are ethical demands on the person who observes the performance. Because we are precisely the ones that are going to either – I mean she tries to get us away from this concept of recognition right of of the subject uh, of conferring recognition on on one another but but really we are the ones who are going to decide if we are going to say that yeah i get that that's a viable subject position or i you know it and so she she says you know this is why we have to be able to say Well, I may not recognize that, that may not be intelligible to me, but I am going to open up this space for your performance and for this identity. And it's not fully, um, how to put this? We have a vested interest in doing so, right? Like if I foreclose that space to you, I have foreclosed that space to myself. And so we have this, this ethical responsibility to create as much space as possible for one another, I guess.
0: Which is tough. And, and I, I love how you frame this, this idea of the ethical demands uh, on the observer or the reader or the interpreter. Um, I think my question more goes to the idea of like, how do you do this at, at the level of a system? Um, and I, I, I think about this like to, to break it down into like an example. I am a white, straight, cisgender male from the United States of America that grew up during a certain age. The system is created and has been created for years or or existed for years in a way that I become an incredibly legible, intelligible subject. Um, So for me to maintain that uh, status is very easy. I mean, it, it doesn't mean that there isn't any work there. There isn't any of a navigation of systems and identity and performance, right? But I, I think that when you're in a system that is set up for a certain kind of legible or intelligible identity, um, how can, what are the ethical demands on the system to open itself up to people whose identity is not traditionally more legible and i think there have been we can see changes we can see changes in the golden age Mm -hmm. the morisco arguments some of these Mm -hmm. uh inquisition uh, cases that we talked about some of them have made space some of them have foreclosed that space um and i think we see this now too with other identities that are there's more space for them but some in some cases they've been more foreclosed and i'm just uh, i mean kind of throwing this out there you know what is our obligation and, and our strategy for making the, uh, an in, individual who is not typically legible or intelligible during, within a system making this process easier for them?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, <laughs> you know, I think, yeah, at that systemic level, I think that is where we have to be creative. Um, but and maybe I'll you know it's going to my my work with with Dorotea through the lens of of the Me Too movement, right? Like and maybe this is what Cervantes was 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 trying to do, right? Is that it, it is to show us that systemic level of narrative, right? And I would argue that's what the Me Too movement, um the rape culture is win hashtag, right? Like I think that is what those movements were trying and are trying to do is is to is to show us that In that particular case, rape is normalized due to societal attitudes about gender and sexuality. It's our cultural representations of rape that say, well, you can't be a rapist if you're a college student or if you're rich or if you're noble like Don Fernando, right? Or if you're an athlete, Um, like those people aren't rapists. Um, And so I think at some point we have to get at, we have to be shown the cultural narrative Right. the and, and to go back to the a 17th century example, the the narrative of the Spanish Inquisition that Moriscos were not real Christians. Right. They were not true Christians. They were not good Christians. Um, and I think that's what we get with Sordaida or Ana Felix. Right. In the Quixote, in both part one and part two, we and and. Uh, you know Rui Perez or Ricote, like Cervantes is is putting up these narratives that reveal the systemic narrative behind it so that we can start to change, I think that that systemic or cultural narrative um, and so what I have concluded with like the Brock Turner case or or the Dorotea case is that um you know. In both the fictional Fernando case and the historical Turner or Weinstein or Kavanaugh cases, what we see is a social reluctance to label powerful or ideal men as rapists. Um, It's their privileged social standing precisely that protects them. And so we don't need better legislation or more equal access to citizenship for women or for mariscos, right? I mean... Both in 1605 and you know 2021, the issue is a problem of representation, and I think it's precisely literature that that can show us how to address this problem. Right? Like, so how how do we represent? How do we change that cultural narrative? And really, we need to change our representations.
0: Yeah, and I think um, one thing that your comment makes me think about is even though we have maybe more room for an openness for perhaps uh, underrepresented groups to be um, to go beyond this typical legibility that we have within the system and maybe an opening of the system to a diversity I mean we maybe don't have that for uh, the assailant um we have this idea of oh well this is a good guy so he couldn't have done that or he did this for a specific reason right so we might see an opening on the other side but i don't know if we're seeing an opening on the in the dominant identities the ones that are easier to fit within the system of their simultaneous ability to be a paradoxical identity to be a um, you know, I've heard this, uh, I've, I've heard people say this to me, uh, and I think I might have even said this in the past. Oh, I can't be, uh, I can't be a chauvinist or, or, or do this. I have daughters. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I think there might be a space, uh, I'll, I'll let you react to that, but the space to maybe this is an important part of it of seeing that, yeah, you can be a good person in many different ways and still do something that's horrible uh, and problematic uh, in these ways. I, just throwing that out there.
1: Oh, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, in the Brock Turner case, for example, my, my response is, he's not a monster, but he is a rapist. But those things are really contradictory in in our cultural narratives, right? Like, well, how can you be one but not the other? And I think that's what Me Too and rape culture is when I I mean I think that's what those movements are trying to say is that um we actually I, I mean sure there is there are rooms to improve our cultural narratives around around women and and survivors of rape. Um, but to your point, it's actually that dominant representation that needs to be changed like we need to change our cultural narrative around the men right around the perpetrators in that in those instances
0: yeah and you know i think this is something that in some ways could be a a good thing for male identity i mean uh, um now there's there's uh studies now and working groups who study the figure of the male and not in this more political sense that we can find of a reaction to um, um, typically more on the right to uh, changes in uh, rights for women and different groups, but really a consideration of how men are represented. And I think there's, uh, there's a positive, uh, perhaps, Valen's side to this as well, um where you know when you grow up or at least my experience growing up as a guy uh, and i have really cool understanding parents you still feel this idea of there are ideas that you have to to fit into um and i think perhaps you know this dominant discourse or identity and the inflexibility of it is problematic because it as we're talking about it it punishes the system punishes those who don't fit into it perfectly so minorities other groups that that um you know and in the case of women who are i think globally the majority as well um, we see that it, it undershares them but i think uh by changing this we can also see a positive aspect of considering what is it to be a male um it's not a specific kind of tight-knit category that can't you can't go outside of it
1: Hmm. i think that's right
0: I wanted to get into Zoraida. Um Especially kind of thinking about this through some of the things we've been talking about, um, but social media. Now, Zoraida, we talked a little bit about this, 11 words. Her story is presented um, by El Cautivo, right? The captive uh, soldier who comes back with her, who they, you know, I can't. I don't think they're actually married, right? They get married a little bit later. Um, at the time, so we get the story about her and one. And I and I think you do a really just like Dorotea in your work. You do an exceptional job of seeing how these discourses work together in their paradoxical interaction, opposition, etc. But I wanted to go back to you talk specifically in one of your articles about, I call Soraida Soraida, uh, and this, is, this really fascinated me because I don't know where I stand on this either, um, and I wanted to revisit it with you. Now, Zoraida says in these 11 words, some of these words, that she is not Zoraida, she is Maria, right, mm-hmm. taking the name of the Virgin Mary. Uh, And I thought your argument in favor of you continuing to call her Zoraida instead of calling her Maria was very interesting uh, and almost convinced me, right? Uh, But it's still, (laughs) and I don't know if there's anything that will get me to that other side. Um, But I was thinking about while you were talking about this in your article, this idea of couldn't we think of calling Zoraida Zoraida as a contemporary or a, a golden age idea of what we see contemporary society of dead naming dead naming taking somebody who is taken a different name that they feel better reflects their their person or identity or for whatever specific reason and then we call them their previous name that could have been given by their parents or uh kind of imposed upon them and i i just wanted you to talk a little bit about that uh how you got to that decision because i think I don't know, I, I'm glad I didn't have to make that decision and write that out in an article myself.
1: Yeah, it's it's a great question and a really complicated question. Um, and so that article, I think, was published in 2016. And, you know, it's one of those things that... Um, I I think my own... my own, uh, thinking is, is evolving. I I don't know if I would completely say it's changed and, and I'll unpack that a bit, but, um, I think it's a fair question. So here, here's where I come down. (laughs) Um, I think, and it is something that I, I struggle with when I both write about and teach the book. Um, and I often when both teaching and and writing about her will use the you know sort of slashes right so Soraida, marien maria and the Marien is interesting to me because the only time she refers to the virgin Marie the Virgin Mary as Maria is at the end we have otherwise numerous cases of again it's it's, re- it's related through Rui Perez, um, but in her writings to him, in her conversations with him, she would refer to the Virgin as Leila Mar- Marianne, right? So using this this Islamic concept, or at the very least, the Arabic name for the Virgin Mary. So, So for me, Maria seems really simplistic. Like... I, and I don't know if it's, as I say in that article, we know which ideology won out. And so for me, it just seems really facile. And not super honest to to use Mary or, or Maria. Like it just seems too simplistic. In a way that Soraiva never is simplistic. I mean, she talks and, and that Rui Perez isn't simplistic as he speaks about her, right? And he even in a nod at one point says, after she has said, no, no, Maria, Maria, he says. Soraida, la que ahora quiere llamarse María, and so it's like this prince move, right? Like this is this like, formerly known as, right? And yeah, so she
0: who wanted to, wants to be called from now on María, yeah.
1: And, and and for me, I don't know. Like it feels like we don't have enough information from her to simply say María. Although I mean, again, to your point and this idea of dead naming. Like, that is her preference. And so, like, do we not believe her preference? But then I will also say, and, and this has nothing to do with the sort of really tricky, like, ethical question that we're dealing with here. On, on a really simplistic, just academic, scholarly level, to write about Maria in the Quixote, I don't think anyone would know who you were talking That's about.
0: True that's very true so
1: so i don't know like it's it's this really fascinating conundrum
0: yeah and it goes back to this kind of pragmatic thing you talked i love your example of prince because prince you know changed it to the symbol and then everyone said the artist formerly known as prince right, right. because there was just no way that they were going to be able to do that communication wise and in in cervantes were you know Oh, gosh, I'm trying to think of how many Antonios there are and different names that repeat themselves throughout. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can be very, very confusing. So there is that is that, that pragmatic side. Um, one of the things I was thinking about with Soraida is I like to think about Zoraida and a lot of the characters um, in kind of what-if scenarios. And Zoraida is really interesting because, you know, is 1605 the first part of the quixote comes out and 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 she's presented um and then by the time the next one comes out in 1615 we've seen we've gone through that uh 16 was 1609 i think is when expulsion the expulsion uh goes into effect and you see kind of all the 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 growing pains that come out of the enactment of that policy uh she almost becomes you know impossible like an impossible character, and she does. There is stuff that uh, similar characters that are visited later on, etc. But I, I just I like to think about what, how would that present herself, or even Dorothea present herself? How would it be different today? Because um, so much of identity, especially outside of a system, in your own whoever you are, like uh, stylings of your own identity, seems to be tied to an idea of play um and playing around when you're like when i was a teenager i i went from all i tried on all the different possible clothes right in this uh, identities through clothes and different things that were presented to me um and continue to to kind of do that right and i'm i'm wondering in a world of social media in a world where, you know, Cervantes' was Cervantes's, uh, time period was going through an expulsion, not expulsion, in a, um, a massive expansion of ways to express yourself and tailor yourself and present yourself and do that embodied performance. And we're in that same point with social media. So how would Soraya or Dorote- Doroteo's embodied performance be different in an age of social media? Or how would it be the same, too?
1: Right. Yeah, that's a fun, fun thing to ponder. Um, I I mean, I think on the one hand, we could say that they were playing in a new social media, right? I I mean, the novel. (laughs) I mean, that is the first time that we ever saw a farmer's daughter as a protagonist or, uh, you know, Algerian, Muslim, Christian, Spaniard, <laughs> right? Who ransoms some Christian captives or or a peasant, right? Or Sancho. I mean, so so we were seeing this play in the in a very new social media. Um so what would that look like today? I mean, I do think uh I think the play aspect is important. I think that concept of trying on is is interesting. And maybe, you know, to go back to this, this Soraya, the Maria question, like, I feel like that story was not completed. Well, I mean, we, we know, right? I mean, we, we've written, scholars have written about the fact that that story is left very open ended in the 1605 Quixote. And so it, it feels really hard. Or, or maybe like you're closing off, that performance by if you just went straight to Maria because it just didn't seem complete like I don't know that Soraiva got to um, as opposed to Dorotea sort of wrap up her story in a way that was satisfying for her <laughs> so so I don't know I, I got off topic and and did not answer your question of, of what that would look like today but um, but yeah, I, I think there's the, the social media question is interesting. Um, I don't know.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, one of the comments you just made that was interesting to me makes me think about the insufficient nature of names, um, even changeable names. Um, I have had students, uh, I believe, colleagues at, uh, throughout my, my different Jobs that I've done in life and family members who have changed their names or have drastically changed their identity. Um, And there's many ways to do this. I mean, we tend to focus more on the LGBTQ community and our our present conversations culturally, but there's a lot of ways that this can happen. And uh, one of the things I find interesting in conversations with people who have done this is that the name the present name still also seems kind of insufficient of embodying what was previous as well. Uh, And your idea of the slash uh, when you're talking about Sereda is, is really interesting too. Um, But also pragmatically it becomes bulky. It's like that, you know, it's like putting a symbol prints, putting the, you know, the symbol up there. Um, And I think it's just fascinating to see how much we are, are um determined by our names but also insufficiently represented by them.
1: Mm-hmm. I I I think that is absolutely right. And does yeah.
0: maybe getting back to social media does this new play space give us new opportunities? Does the new play space of the novel give these characters uh a new space to better encompass who they were, who they are, and maybe who they will be by way of, you know, this embodied performance, be it name, be it clothes, etc.
1: Yeah, I think it does. I mean, I think, you know, in 1605, the novel, I mean, Dorotea is with us for... Is it nineteen chapters? I'd have to go back and look, but it, it's a really significant chunk of the first part of the novel. Um, she speaks for when when she does her original introduction. It's it's like nine pages. It's it's a really extensive. So so I think that is a place where we see that new social media of the novel. Giving her this this new creative space, right where she can can really uh, dig in and and explain herself and and perform right and and she gets to wander from these economic discourses to these moral discourses and and she just sort of wanders out there. And I think social media today does something similar to your point of of not maybe, Recognizing, or, or a name not capturing, a, a new name not capturing who you previously were. In some ways, the the curse and the charm of of our current social media is that it's really hard for those past iterations to be removed. And so, I think you have you have a public account. <laughs> that that perhaps captures the evolution of identity in ways that we've never done before. And, and that's both a, a curse and, and a blessing, right? I mean, I, I know there are people for whom, you know, getting things removed from social media becomes the quest, right? That, that you don't want those out there. But I think there's a way where we could look at it Certainly, theoretically, (laughs) um, that it it might provide this more ample account and more honest account of the evolution of identity.
0: I hadn't thought about it that way. It's and and perhaps it will as we get farther down the road in this process, this layering of identities that we can find of ourselves, find of ourselves or other people presented online will increase within our own perception, the idea of an acceptance of paradox. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I have the advantage coming from the generation that I come from is there's probably a few ridiculous Polaroids and old pictures of me floating around in someone's collection of me in what would now seem ridiculous clothing. Um, But those most likely are never going to come out, right? Especially the ones that are in my own <laughs> possession. Um, I'm very protective of those. But uh, someone growing up in this fully in this digital age, they're going to have those, those layers. And I, the way I think of it is tattoos. Uh, I have a, a tattoo uh, on my shoulder of the Picasso, Don Quixote, Sancho, It took me years. It took me to the end of grad school to get up enough nerve to get a tattoo. Primarily because when I was younger, there was this talk of, you get a tattoo, you will never get a job. There's no way you will ever get a job. And I took this very seriously until, and I think tattoos are really cool. I mean, if I i think if i gotten started earlier i'd have sleeves right yeah <laughs> um and uh, i've got a friend who has just these beautiful sleeves uh that they've gotten done and uh i just i'm I'm wondering like now you can if you go into certain workplaces you're not going to see somebody without a tattoo practically uh it's yeah. just part of the culture um opening it up to um those different, uh, layers and ambiguities, uh, of identity. So I, I really like the way you frame that. Um, um, so even though you said you didn't answer my question and you didn't have an answer for it, I think that's a really important, uh, insight. Um, so I don't want to keep you too terribly long. Um, cause this has been a really, really great conversation and nothing kills a conversation by letting it go on too long, but I wanted to to give a really general kind of question, um, and this kind of goes back to a lot of the stuff we've been talking about, but what should we take away from our consideration of these aspects of, of, of Don Quixote uh, or of Cervantes in general, or specifically these two characters?
1: Yeah, I think for me, My takeaway, or or certainly recently, right, I mean, allowing that that our identities evolve and change, I guess, (laughs) Um, right now, I think the takeaway that I like to impress upon my students or or even for me, for my own readings, are really, um, you know... Be open to paradox. Develop this, uh, what Pressburg calls, posture of paradox. Um, I think in really simple terms, it's this playful approach to interpretation, right? Um, And this openness to interpretation. I, I mean, for me, that is how I read Certainly the Quixote today is that it is this plea for this openness to interpretation. Um, and and yeah, I, I guess it, it is that let's be good ethical readers. Let's be good ethical witnesses to one another's embodied performances.
0: Yeah, which is very tough. I think in a lot of ways We're, we are— Our natural uh, psychological, neurological wiring is set up that we we make snap judgments. Um, And this is a part of how our brain works, right? But it's so important for us to see that those serve us well only to a certain extent. That, mm-hmm. that that openness to the critical aspect and thinking about paradox and ambiguity. It's not only a good way for us to be ethical to others, but it opens up a lot of opportunities for us mm-hmm. uh, as well to more fully express ourselves as a person, mm-hmm. right? To be Alonso, Alonso Quijano or whatever his name is in the first part, mm-hmm. But also be Don Quixote, and not to have like Alonso Quijano el bueno mm-hmm. um, the name at the end of the second part of Don Quixote in stark contrast, knowing its frame to uh, Don Quixote to allow us to, to be those those multiple personalities right mm-hmm. uh <laughs> in that embodied performance
1: yeah, I think that's right, I think. Those snap judgments served us well when we were running through jungles and having to decide, oh, that's that's a jaguar. That could kill me. (laughs) Right. But in multicultural democratic societies, it's not a super useful strategy.
0: Oh, and we're bad at it.
1: We're bad at it. We are really bad bad at at it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, and, you know, I. Not to, to digress too much, but it's, it's interesting. I I love how you say, to, you know, Alonso Quijano, Don Quixote, Alonso Quijano al Bueno. I I think there's a parallel there with Soraida the Marien Maria, right? Like, I mean, the last word we have from him is, "I want to be called Alonso Quijano al Bueno." Like, do not call me Don Quixote. <laughs> And yet, and yet we never call him that, right? So, I mean, there's all of these. But but again, because that Alonso Quijano El Bueno does reincorporate him into the dominant ideology of the day. And and it oversimplifies this really messy, complex character, right? So, so how do we, to your point, I, I think, how do we... Um, how do we allow for subjectivity and identity in all of its complexity?
0: Mm-hmm. Christy, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure speaking with you. We're going to um, pop in the, sh- in the show notes when they're available, uh, links to the articles we've talked about. Um, and then, uh, Christy, if you want to, in an email later, provide anything like uh, some of the good work that you're doing in South Dakota, if there's any way that uh, uh, listeners can get involved uh, or learn more, uh, please feel free to um, uh, provide that information. And we'll get that in the show notes so everybody can kind of be up on everything. So
1: Wonderful. That's exciting. Yeah, I, I will definitely do that. And thank you so much. This was so much fun. <laughs>
0: Thanks, Christy. And for all you clamoring for the next episode, it is presently in the works. We have a few in the pipeline, so they will be appearing shortly. In the interim, if you have if you have any questions or comments, or you would be interested in participating in the show, perhaps as a guest, please let me know. You can contact me at my email, swhessel, that's S-W-H-E-S-S-E-L, at bsu.edu. Thanks, and have a great day.